Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The corporate finance aspects of DC investing are critical. Steve Harris has been an investor for over two decades, and we've discussed many areas. Valuations, getting exits, the importance of plans when things go wrong, and most importantly, are corporate finances or entrepreneurs the best venture capital investor? If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today in the podcast, we are joined by Steve Harris, who is CEO at Committed Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Hey, thanks. As usual, we'd like to find out a little more about you. So can you perhaps tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? Well, I've been in the, in the VC industry for some time and previously invested by a fund so with Committed Capital, which we founded in 2001. We invested initially from limited partnerships, and then we did a management buyout in 2009. And post that, we invested the money of high net worth people originally with, a, with an EIS tax wrapper, and then established an EIS fund, or rather structure, in 2000, beginning of 2015. So I think from our side, you know, there was a strong imperative to invest, as we'd always done, in tech VC. And the EIS wrapper, I think, is, is, is excellent in terms of developing the sector. Yeah. And what sort of stage of companies do you invest in? Because I think that's be relevant to the discussion later on. We're what we call ourselves growth phase investors. And so what that means from our perspective is that it's not a startup. Uh, the company has a product which is out in the market so we can we can test the the efficacy user experience with the product and generally there's a relatively fully formed team although we would expect to you know have a little bit of spend a little bit of time looking at the composition of the board and the structures and so on result of our first investment so it's growth stage investment mm-hmm. yeah so when we spoke beforehand, you spoke a bit about supporting companies, and I thought it would be good to get your perspective on that because everyone does it a little bit differently. And you were perhaps emphasizing the corporate finance perspective that you bring. And maybe you want to give a quick high-level overview of what you mean by that. Yes, corporate finance is, is certainly it's one, of the, one of the elements. So if we think about the troika of support, you know, if you like, of, of venture capital activities, well, I suppose that would be composed of search and selection meaning finding relevant companies to invest in best in class in any given segment. <clears throat> Second one being corporate finance, which is broadly investing in and exiting from companies. And the, and the third one is, is just general, if you like, operational and functional support for the underlying investee companies. If you strip away what we're doing to its, its barest elements, if you like, the, the critical thing is to invest you know, invest at a price um, that's reasonable and exit at a price that's in line with fund requirements, but significantly higher than the than the entry price. That that's a function, really, at a certain level of just the deal doing capability of of the team. And so I think so. The bits I would include in corporate finance would be due diligence valuation, which is tricky and probably an art as much as the science in, in you know with early stage companies what we call marketing documentation. So for us, that's the investment uh, memorandum and the one pager, deal documents, term sheet, investment agreement, ancillaries, negotiation, and most importantly, how to get into as well as how to get out of investments in terms of the, the deal structure. And there are some metrics actually on that, which I think are quite interesting. 
one of the reports that we saw came out last last year identified in up and down the UK about 21,000 EISable companies. And not all of them had had EIS, but they were sort of the right stage to meet the requirements for, for the EIS program. Of those 21,000 investments since 2011, only 5% as of the end of last year had been exited, which I suppose when I saw that, I thought, you know, there is a systemic problem. And I think in part why we think corporate finance skills are important is because corporate financiers get become very used to this business of taking on a transaction as agent to sell a company. They get very used to identifying potential buyers and going through the process with them and, and actually exiting. I mean, it, it's clearly critical aspects of all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, so there's a huge amount of things I can dive into there. You touched on valuation being as much of an art as a science. And I think it's something a lot of people, particularly when they come from quote investment, they struggle with where in, in the quote of world, you have price to book and your PE or enterprise value to EBITDA, and we all know what these mean. But none of these work in the unquoted world. And maybe price to revenue could help, but how, how do you look at valuation? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And I, I was back at you know, business school, and, and of course, there was a very specific way to buy on corporate finance. We'd always talk about discounted cash flows. And uh, you know, if you do it properly, then hey, presto, you've got the share price. So here, of course, it is much more difficult. Why is it so much more difficult? Well, because predicting forecasting revenues in this sector is fraught with risk. And so you, know, you slot those into your DCF and, and all sorts of exciting things can happen. Then there was a sort of technical business of using the capital asset pricing model for a discount rate. And again, if you do that in these very high growth companies, you end up with a very large number. Mm-hmm. So Appropriately. <laughs> yes. So, so we do use DCF, but we use it. It is in part a management tool. So when we're when we're doing evaluation, which you know, this is the very grooved in model, as you, as you expect, I've been doing this for quite a long time. So uh, we'll think of a, a number of different things. One is the market metrics in terms of multiples, as you mentioned, the price, the value, as a proportion of or multiple of turnover, ditto EBITDA multiple. The venture capital method, which is a tri- again a tricky one, which is looking out five years at, at the EBITDA and revenue, applying an appropriate multiple, then discounting them back again to a present value, is another method. And then another method would be industry, you know, an industry standard. So, for example, we've done a bit of financial services investment in IFAs, and there tends to be in the IFA market. Um, I think JP Morgan did the Bible. The three times multiple of recurring revenue with them. So, so there are a whole bunch of different things. So, what we do is a lot of numbers, and we then drop it onto a presentation which has all of the different metrics. And the the metrics can be spot and forward, which mean current metrics or you know metrics going forward a couple of years, going back a couple of years. And then we have this thing called the flying bar chart, um, which. Um, <laughs> Which gives you, which gives you, um, it just the whole thing in in graphical format. So it shows you where the valuation is that we're proposing, and then it shows you where each of those metrics comes out against the valuation. And the trick is, uh, so you've got a vertical line, which is the valuation. Lots of horizontal lines, which are the uh, the spreads on the different valuations. The trick is to get the outputs, the valuations, over to the right hand side, 
um, i.e. over and above the, the, the valuation of the business. Yeah, it's quite interesting you mentioned about DCFs because you're probably like me in that you remember the, the tech bubble 20 years ago when DCF seemed to be the prime method of valuation a lot of these tech companies and in, certainly in my mind became totally discredited through its use or misuse and abuse and, and, it's, and, it's, and, it, and it's still got problems I think. Really interesting, really interesting. In the tech bubble, I mean, oddly enough, had, had previously looked after uh, the M&A business at one of the consult- management consultants in the UK. And then we set up a technology company, which was 9899. And the valuations were fascinating. And interesting enough, I was giving a, giving a talk in London on the subject of valuation of tech companies prior to joining this new tech investment business. And I was arguing for a more fundamental analysis of these firms. And so actually, a lot of the firms were being valued on clicks, for example. And a lot of them were valued using, as you say, on DCF, but, 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 but on certain assumptions. The assumption might be, for example, that they would three years hence have 4% of the UK market discounted back. And as you rightly say, that gives you a very large number indeed. So I think it's subject to the, um, the rule that you and I probably both know very well, which is garbage in, garbage out. And, and I think that's where... It's a matter of judgment, but I think you need to be very careful about taking management's forecast and just applying conventional TCF metrics to it. So I think running sensitivity is a very good idea. And to be careful with the with, with the model itself. So I think it's the answer is it's one structure amongst many, and it's quite useful for us because what DCF does allow you to do is to look at the structure of the business, i.e. PL balance sheet, cash flow, and how the whole thing hangs together and what the answer possible might be. It's a useful management tool. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned management forecasts, which several people have alluded to me about how, I was going to say they're made up because of course they're made up, but how management rarely, if ever, hit their forecasts. And you talked about stress testing, and, and then there's a natural amount of discounting that people want to think about. So I remember some people used to say, okay, you take management forecast and you assume they're going to happen one year later than is, is sort of planned. And that seemed a bit simplistic. How do you sort of turn management forecast into something that you think is realistic? That's a great question. And I, and I, think, I think it is to an extent, case by case. What's interesting about what you've just said is, now I think of it, the number of times I've sat in a, a management meeting at Community Capital and we've said, oh, the company's missing its forecasts this year, oddly enough, the forecast of this year more or less equate to last year's numbers. So last year's forecast. So I think that happens a lot. Now, what, what we tend to do is, is something that is perhaps a little bit more detailed than that. So typically what we'll do is look at the, the company's pipeline and go through it. So you might have, I don't know, 30 items, 40 items in the pipeline. We'll talk to the, uh, the individual responsible for the relationships workout what the probabilities are. Some of the things in there will have been sold already. That's fine. Uh-huh. Some might be recurring. And, and although that concept, the recurring income concept, is probably one of the most abused in our in our um, sector, but let's assume it's true here in this case. And then others will have a probability on them. So what we try to do is construct a ground-up uh, model with lots of proper nouns in it. In other words, all of the counterparties in there with a probability weighted sales. So if it sells 3 million, you know, 50% probability, then we'll put in 1.5. So I think, you know, so that 
has served us pretty well. The thing you need to be slightly aware of when doing that is that you know there are consequences to reducing the forecast in revenues, and the consequences clearly hit costs. So you've got uh, you know variable cost of sales, you've got um, step costs in other areas, and what do you do about those? Because you can end up with a model that makes no sense at all with revenues um, at one level and costs constructed for a completely different revenue. So it's it's a it's a slightly complex exercise. But I think if you stay at the right level of abstraction with it, then then you know you can make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always seems to me an an interesting challenge. Well, for me, I love numbers, so it's an interesting thing when I look at companies and their projections. Yes. So there is one other thing here that it, probably is worth rehearsing, which is that you're absolutely right. So the forecasts very rarely do we see forecasts that are that are undercooked. I mean, by and large, they're significantly sometimes optimi- on the optimistic side. And, and I think that there is a reason for that. There's, a, there's an inbuilt perverse incentive, unfortunately, in our industry. So management team, you know, they're, they're desperate to grow the business and they need to attract investment. Uh, there needs to be some sizzle to attract investment, some excitement. Uh, and one of the ways of doing it, of course, is to inflate the revenue numbers. So uh, it, unfortunately, it is, it is a feature of our industry and the thing is that there isn't a countervailing force so with a listed company if you you know you over forecast too many times at your peril um because you get found out but of course it's not so true here you know particularly companies who want to do a, a raise a one-off raise or possibly a raise and then another raise in two years time memories are relatively are relatively short so well we have to take that into account now and i think you know, generally we will apply a hefty deflator and also probably use a high discount rate yeah, I think there's a second bias in there, which is inherently the sort of managers of these companies are optimists by nature. Otherwise, they wouldn't be what they're doing. I mean, logically, you look at the failure rates of startup companies, and it's not something that most people would would look at and say, hey, I should start up a company because it doesn't work out. So if you've got someone who's actually developing a company, by their nature, they're an optimist, and they're probably, as a consequence, not that they're trying to necessarily goose the figures sort of to, to, to sort of impress anybody necessarily, but they probably actually believe themselves that they can defy the odds. Brilliant. And actually, that, that links in something that you and I were discussing um, a little while ago. Uh, you're absolutely right. So the, the features of an entrepreneur, so that they're remarkable. They're a remarkable group of people, in our view. We, you know, we love our, you know, our, our management teams. You know, we sit back occasionally are astounded by what they achieve. Talented people, driven you know, hardworking, innovative. But then if you look at some of the some of the numbers um, behind all of this, so in 2019, going back several years, nine out of ten of, of nine, nine out of ten startups failed. And, and, and the UK, the UK is such an interesting place for entrepreneurs at the moment. You know, I, I think 2019 you had about something like 650,000 new companies formed. Uh-huh. But nine out of ten going back um, several years from from 2019 had failed. So one of the features of absolutely is optimism in the face of very long odds. So you had a you had a very good question you asked previously, which was around who makes the best, who who would be the a better investor, somebody with corporate finance skills, classic corporate finance skills, or an entrepreneur. Yeah, and part of that came because a couple of episodes ago I had someone who's a former entrepreneur, and he came in saying. I think a former entrepreneur is best, and then obviously you t- you're taking a slightly different perspective. 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, perhaps we also talked about something slightly different, which was which was corporate finance skills. So somebody with classics sort of, if you like, investment banking corporate finance skills versus a pure pure VC. But on this question, because I get asked this, but I ended up in a long discussion with one of my very sort of sophisticated investors on. There is actually quite a lot of research. So we don't need just a. There's a company called uh, CB Insights. Mm-hmm. And they've done they've done a bit of of, of analysis, uh, fundamental analysis, and um, it's quite interesting. So, this, so the question they had, because presumably they've they have exactly the same discussions that we do, is to what extent are former founders turned VCs successful investors versus the more conventional uh, venture capital investor who may have had. You know, a, a bit of company foundation. Most of us have, have been involved in founding companies once, but but are not at heart founders. So it's VC investor versus founder investor. And I'm afraid for your the conversation with your friend, uh, the results are not very helpful because. So what they discovered in this report, using a lot of a lot of data in terms of the U.S. market, there there are very few founders amongst the top rank of VC investors in the U.S. Very few, and then if you look at the performance of former founders in amongst um, other industry practitioners, then their performance is average at best. So, which is which I thought was an interesting finding, and and we what the report doesn't say is why that would be, mm-hmm. but we I guess well you and I have actually touched on one of those You've things got already, a which is <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> well, you. I think I always said to my say to my children, you have to have a plan, and so you, you do. Have, you've got to have some sort of. I think actually that's the way the way that you, the brain is constructed is you try and find patterns in things. So I think for the first thing to say is is appetite appetite for risk. So as a founder, as we've touched on, you need to be looking through some of these very negative statistics about the survival rate of companies and think, well, that doesn't apply to me. It's a huge degree of optimism in there. And in some cases, it's founders. Some entrepreneurs we see who've done this two or three times, very time successful. But generally, generally, statistically, it can't be true. So, so they're very optimistic people. If you take that mindset and become an investor with it, you're potentially entering a world of pain. I think you know one of the features of good VCs is that they need what I call a healthy dose of pessimism, meaning that they've got to slightly think where could, it sounds like a brilliant plan, but where could it all go wrong? And what's the probability of it going wrong? If it does go wrong, what happens to my investors' money? So I think there is a bit of that. The other thing I would say is that is that founder VCs, uh, at least by experience, I look at them, what they really want to do is run the business. Uh, not in all cases, but in some. And I think if you go down that route, you're again in a world of pain because you can't replicate that as a VC. Mm-hmm. You can't manage all of your you know, portfolio of 30 investee, investee companies. It just isn't a scalable model. Anyway, that's my theory. Mm-hmm. It's a good theory. It's interesting, your statistics, because my impression from a distance is that Silicon Valley has a lot of entrepreneurs turned venture capitalists. I mean, Anderson Horowitz are probably the the, the most famous, but there's a lot of people who found a bit of success and they've turned into angel investor fund managers. There's probably a whole pile of people who aren't, who maybe just aren't on my horizon or whatever. But certainly in the US, there seems to be this feeling that founder experience is quite important, quite essential. 
And I don't get the same sensation in the UK. And that, that, that's based on impression. Yeah, no, we, we think so. This is what I should have said. I should have balanced all of that, really. So there, there seems to be a number, uh, you know, a difference in the, there's, there's certainly a difference between perception and reality, however, in, in terms of this question. But I think what's important to recognize is that having people with founder experience within a VC is actually very important. But I, but I would categorize it as being part of having a varied group of individuals who, when you sit down as an investment committee, can all raise different points. Why we, you know, we're pretty diverse as a group, but I might sound like a sort of um, uh, slightly sort of uh, uh, posh classic VC, but the, the, group, the group is is extremely able and very, and very varied. And on the board, we have, well, one individual, for example, who is a pure founder. So he ran his own business, you know, from scratch to 2.6 billion of market cap and then and then sold to pure founder. And having the insight of somebody like that is critically important, in part because I think the way he looks at the way that we we certainly do now as well, which is to say what's the what's happening in the market, what's the market opportunity, what would he how would he be thinking about it, you know, if he if he were a, a founder of, of the business we're looking to invest in. So I think it's absolutely critical part of the overall armory. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of sympathy with that. And certainly in my own writings, I think I've come to the conclusion that a balanced team is best. And the the cliche is you get a former entrepreneur who's effectively trying to teach somebody how to sort of win the lottery again using the same numbers that they had, which doesn't really always work. Conversely, the potential pitfall in corporate finance is that you don't truly understand what the entrepreneurial journey is about and can't give that right support. Those to me seem to sort of downsides. So getting both people in your team, I think, is definitely a plus point. Yeah, and I think that I think they're both right. And I think the first, the former point you mentioned speaks to just how quickly markets can move. So we're tech market investors. So we're actually looking through the tech, if you like, at a, in each case, at a commercial, a set of commercial circumstances and opportunities. But within this space, Tech changes very quickly. I mean, you've got to look at some of the things we've invested in 10, 15 years ago. We couldn't dream of calling them technology companies now because a lot of what they did was pure hygiene, hygiene factors uh, today. You know, so people who Such are wizards. Uh, well, I, I think I was thinking of things like um, taking a company that, that's got uh, digital marketing. In those days, you, know, you could... So actually, we invest done a number of investments into the IFA space, but sort of, if you like, tech-driven independent financial advisors in the UK market. And if you had a chief exec who was who really understood digital marketing, it, it could make a massive difference to the business then, but now it's a hygiene factor. Another aspect is um, taking a business and adding a technology skin to it. So enterprise software. And again, in those days in the IFA space, typically that didn't exist. But if you created it for the business, all of a sudden you had an empowered advisor who had in his hand, you had his laptop or his device, he could download the systems, do all the forms on that, his diary would be centralized, you could send him or her appointments uh, in his particular area, and so on. Uh, And actually, you could cut probably 30% out of the general day to day activities. And you can you can do a lot with in terms of regulatory compliance as well, providing systems. All of that was fine. So back in 2011, that was a differentiator. Today, 
it's not. You know, we both companies, both IFAs, we we invested and done really well. But but today, they, people would say, well, that's an IFA agglomerator. It's just going out buying companies, isn't it? But back then, it was it was it was different. I think if you look at not to characterize the entire sector, but certain elements of the insurance sector particularly, let's say, local broking. And we looked at it very closely. I've invested in a, a great business, I think will be a great business called Concilio, local broker. But the we did some, an analysis of the technology being used. And, and some one, I think there were about three main sorts of software, one of which the genesis was in back in the late 70s. And they're, they're very focused around the transaction. So, so setting up the policy and, and, and uh, processing claims. Whereas what you need to be doing is going much, much broader than that. Because part of the issue for local brokers selling a whole raft of insurance policies is they all differ. So you might have fleet insurance, uh, directs and officers insurance, key man insurance, buildings. What's your special subject? And clearly, if you have a team, let's say, of 100 or 200 brokers up and down the country. In amongst that team, everybody will know, some will know the weaknesses of others. And if you have a pr- proper social networking group within your software, then they can they can impart their wisdom or go and visit the clients or whatever. It, it, it's a huge upsell opportunity enabled by good technology, which wouldn't have existed probably 10 years ago, is beginning to exist now. And in 10 years' time, it'll just be a hygiene factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder a little bit about AI in that respect. And that AI is neither as bright as he's saying, but I suspect in a decade, everyone's going to have access to AI and it's not really going to be a differentiator anymore. Yes, that's it's really interesting one that there are lots of issues coming out of coming out of AI. Some of them are moral and ethical. Mm-hmm. Some of them to do with you know the impact on jobs. To what extent will certain jobs exist and management, management, for example, and some of them relating to to processes. To what extent can each process be subjected, if you like, to artificial intelligence to improve it and take out some of the human fallibility? Uh, yeah, I, I think there is there is an issue because you probably will be able to do a certain amount with artificial intelligence, all of which is becoming manifestly clear now. But then perhaps in uh, in five, six years' time, uh, once we've done the AI thing, the benefits will be will be more limited. And I, and I think you know, if you read books by the likes of, I don't know, Ray Kurzweil, is that this idea of the singularity at a certain point uh, in that process, in, in some areas, that the human being becomes less relevant. Uh, not to say, as some have said, um, but we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I'd like to go back to something else you mentioned in your introduction, because you talked about the small number of EIS companies or EIS, potentially EIS eligible companies that have reached some sort of exit. And at the risk of digging into data that you don't have to hand, my guess is within there that there would be a fair amount of failures. There's probably a few lifestyle businesses. Not everybody's actually looking for an exit or whatever. But on the other hand, within the IS industry, if, if, if I look at past performance statistics, we need a few more exits. What do you think the issues are and how do we, get, how do we solve them? Yeah, that's, it's quite a complex 
question. I, at Ohio, what, what do we do? We, you know, we've got people who, I mean, I ran an M&A department with a, uh, about 200 people, in well, but, so, so spent a lot of my time just doing company sales and, and in many ways apply the same disciplines here. A lot of them are down to project management, actually. There's a timing issue because, at least from our perspective, we want a whole bunch of things to line up before we want to do an exit. So we want you know, markets to be behaving sensibly. So you've got really good metrics in the market to base the sale on. We want the company to have hit uh, what we try to think of as a normalized turnover, gross profit, EBITDA. We want the company to be profitable at that point. We want it to be relatively fully formed. And the point is that you, when anyone does their due diligence, what you don't want them to, to, to be coming back to you with is, well, we're a bit disappointed that you haven't built out the sales and marketing function. Or we're a bit disappointed that you don't have any metrics on your digital sales. So you want the company to be in, in good order, in a, in a good market. So that then, if you follow that logic, means that you probably don't have necessarily a massive window to sell the company properly. And you'll be highly motivated after the EIS seasoning period, three years, at a certain point to sell the business. You then need to get onto it quite quickly. So what we do is identify as part of the, the initial due diligence exercise, identify with management the categories of potential buyer going forward, strategic buyer, financial buyer, private equity, for example, perhaps exit by IPO if the, if the markets are working, functioning mm-hmm. properly. So that seems, there's some stats this week about there was 12 IPOs last year or something? Yeah, shocking, isn't it? It's, it is yeah, absolutely not, shocking. Not um, so... Yes, so that's the very significant issue. And I think it's one that's in part driven by the availability of of private money versus public money, and in part driven by the issues that arise in growth businesses when they collide with the aim rules, for example. So there's a lot they've got to do just to stay on top of disclosure requirements, discussions with the stock exchange, the panel, and so on and so forth. And the cost of it is, and it's also all new. So I think there's a lot in there that can that can trip you up. The other bit is, I think there are tricks of the trade here as well. What we've done on a couple of occasions is introduce third parties, and they tend to be strategic investors. The rules are they come in, if they like the business, they invest in what we call a significant minority, which means not more than 10%. And we keep them fully informed. They'll never have a, a, an option to buy the business because that, that would be a mistake. But very often they help drive the sales process. And, and if the runes fall in the right way, they can, and certainly we've had cases where we've introduced a strategic investor and they bought bought the business at a good multiple at the end of the EIS seasoning period. So I think that kind of thing is, is helpful. The other thing that is important is once you've identified your potential exit routes is to dust it off every so often, go back, have a look at it. Is it still relevant? Are there others that we should be considering? And then finally, just common sense really, but as we go through the journey with companies, they tend to be approached by third parties who say, Either we'd like to buy you and we say, well, not quite because we're not ready. Um, or they say, we'd like to buy you when you've grown up a bit. And so it's just a question of keeping a, keeping a record of those and including them in the, in the process. And, you know, from our perspective as well, getting to know potential buyers in the private ex- equity sphere, for example, if you think that's a sensible route. But it's a different, it's horses for courses because what we've found, we've done two relatively recent private equity 
well, possibly three, actually, one we've just completed, exits. And each time, the incumbent investor is asked by the private house to keep a chunk of equity in the business. And it might be in our interest to do that, or it might not. But what they're saying is there's the greater fool theory, and they don't want to be seen as the greater fool. So they want, you know, they'll say to me, Stephen, we're fine, happy to do this transaction, but we want you to keep in 25% of your equity. It's the same logic as a management earn out, I think, isn't it? Yeah, same, same, same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So in looking at the industry as a whole, you've got these ideas for good practice. I was going to ask a question that might be very hard. Do you feel that the industry as a whole is focused on these things enough or could more be done? Or is it just a case of immaturity? I mean, we've had a lot of rules changes. I think there's a lot of newer managers. I think more can be done. That's the first thing to say. Second thing to say, if you look at the whole VC model, which is really certainly the stage that, that you know that we're involved, is is the question of getting an, an existing product to market in the most efficient way, given your assets and capabilities, and importantly, constraints. So capital constraints, constraints on 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 best practice. So that being the case, part of our job. Because I think, you know, clearly we could, all of us, all of our investor directors could spend all their time with the underlying companies. And actually, they probably quite like that because it's, it's, it is always, you know, there's always excitement and challenges. So the trick is to find those things that you think are the most value-adding and make the most, make the most difference. And so I suppose in there, there are sort of, there are, what, again, what I call hygiene, hygiene factors. So we're a Actually, I get quite confused with this series A, B, and C concept and its application. I think, you know, I've seen it used in lots of different ways. But if you assume series A is the first institutional round, that's kind of us. Companies set up round, it's got a million quid of, uh, of revenues it really wants to grow, will invest at that point. So for us, the hygiene factor is possibly the most important one is initially is, is governance, actually. Because it's interesting how, how often if you have not put a, a structure in place, it trips you up, a conventional structure. So I'm really thinking of, of the initial stuff that goes into our first investment. So this will be you know, a term sheet leading to changes in the foundation documents, the articles, and the investment agreement. And, it, and it's aspects like uh, composition, makeup of the, of the board, it's the cycle of meetings, masters reserved for board and for non-execs, investor director masters, it's the establishment of what I view as fairly critical board subcommittees. A remuneration committee is, is, is just come off a remuneration committee, but, but that, that is a key part of what we do. Not, not because we want to clip anyone's wings, but because we want people to be properly incentivized to hit the targets that will result in, in success for, for all of us. So, you know, uh, fixed and variable remuneration options, bonuses, then all of the other regulations in relation to the cap table, i.e. buying and selling shares, assumption of debt, purchase, sale of assets, all of that stuff. So having the right structures in place at the beginning means that a lot of stuff gets done quite fast. It could bite us in the backside if it goes wrong. So that that's a key thing. And the question is, and I, I suspect the heart of your question is what, what do you do after that? Having invested, you know, now you're committed to it, what do you do to take the company to the next stage? Infinite number of things you could do. I personally feel as a as a VC that you invest in a company behind management and they need and they manage the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore when most 
issues come up, it's management to deal with it. But I think there are certain areas where where you can help and, and help either the company may be going well, but certain areas could be improved. And I think for us, given what I've just said, so, so this idea of, of the firm as the, the delivery mechanism for a product which they have the bulk of, of the IP into the market, product market strategy is absolutely front and center of all of that. So being focused, organized about product market strategy, pulling together a paper and what I, if on companies on the board of, ideally what I like to do is to dust it off at least once a quarter. How is the product being delivered to the market? You know, is it, is it going through retail, through intermediaries, through digital marketing, you know, direct, whatever? What can we best control? How can we optimize the mix of route to market to make the company a success? To me, that's absolutely critical. Then on the other side, when when things go wrong, slightly wrong, I mean, I think, you know, again, there are a whole load of areas you and I could think of to do with, I don't know, the mix of people at the company individuals, perhaps product problems and so on. There's a whole range of areas and degrees of wrong, I think, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. What can we, so can we really get involved in developing a new product to meet a new market need? No, we can't. We can have a sort of contribution, I hope, to that debate at the board, but it's it's a fundamentally a matter for management to decide where it's in, it's in their control. It's, it's very much their business. Where, at one extreme, where things go badly wrong in these companies, generally it's to do with cash because, you know, they're growing fast. They are probably unprofitable or at least cash flow negative. There are uncertainties, as you and I discussed, uncertainties uh, in uh, revenues. And so I'm afraid I have had discussions where people have come and said, Steve, you know, the board will be there. I've, I've, we've got a bit of a problem. And I'll say, describe it. They say, well, cash flow crunch. What do you mean? Well, you know, we can pay salaries this month or PAYE, but not both. Mm. Um, <laughs> or equivalent. That's and quite severe. So that's severe. So then the question for the VC industry is, what do you do? What do you do? And I think the trick is to have a model, a mental map to deal with it. Now, some of our investing companies have a very you know, distinguished, very seasoned management teams, some don't. And, and if if they don't, then it's our job to step in. And, and in part, it's to do with confidence, but to say, here's the way we normally deal with it. Phase, and, and we have various phases. Phase one is you run out of cash. Let's do the analysis and understand what the problem is. Let's cauterize the problem if we can. And that second thing is, this is to do with cash. So guess what? The easiest thing sometimes deceptively easy is cutting costs. So that would be phase two, look at the cost base, see if you can reduce any obvious costs without cutting to the um, muscle tissue and bones. Third thing is look again at the product market strategy because you know clearly one element of this is you haven't been selling enough product to cover your overhead costs. Let's try to improve that. Let's take some control uh, to the extent we can in-house so let's let's focus on the areas that we can control versus the ones that we can't. And then if all of that works works out, if the investment thesis is, is correct, we'll redo the cash flow forecast, work out what the company needs to, to cover its working capital adequacy. You know, it might be 12 months or 18 months, and then recapitalize the company with debt. And I would be, Brian, I'm afraid I'd be lying to you if I if I said that hasn't happened to us. It has happened to us a few times. But, but the, the common pattern is 
you go through a painful exercise and at the end of it, the company is in a much better place, much more manageable costs, break-even point within its grasp, product market strategy much clarified and reinfused with cash. And there's this great sort of resurgence of this sense of purpose and, and optimism. So generally at the end, it's a good process, but it's, it's not necessarily the most enjoyable exercise. Yeah, it's one of those things that maybe afterwards you can sort of say that, was, that wasn't too bad, but during it, it's probably pretty hellish for the founders and the management team. Yeah, it's awful. And I think part of this is, part of getting it right, I think, getting that right is to do with with, um, with process. And actually, this is business. So, so to an extent, you know which levers to pull and you know what to do. You just need to make sure you've got the right people to do it. But actually, a major part of this is to do with confidence. Uh-huh. Um, and so the thing I find most distressing is, is um, when companies come and see me and say, we've got a cash flow problem, should we phone the administrative receivers? To, to which we have to say, no, that's that's probably not the right thing to do if we think there's still a game to play. And almost certainly, at least in our experience, there is a game to play because we've invested behind a, an investment thesis. And generally, the investment thesis holds true even in a fast-moving tech market for you know five years, maybe 10 years, maybe longer. So generally, there's an answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would be easy to finger point and say, yes, you should have told me earlier, but that doesn't quite solve the problem at the time. Well, it doesn't. And I, th- and I think that, so. there are some elements here that for us are, um, ring alarm bells. One is customer concentration, because if, if you've got a, one customer, even as much as 50% of, of turnover and the customer walks, well, then, then, you, then you're going to have a problem. And mm-hmm. you won't necessarily know that early in the process that it's all going to happen. Everybody wants to sort of hide it away, don't they? There's a difficulty with the main customer. They're not always the first to find out about that. But no, generally, sitting on the board, is the lightning conductor for these things. So you you see, we always sit on the board of investee companies. So generally, you anticipate these problems, but not in all not in all cases, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yes, much as we'd like to have a good handle on the future, it's kind of difficult to forecast. Well, and particularly, we probably ought to mention pandemic came in in March or thereabouts, two thousand and nineteen. I think you know it's fair to say that across UK PLC, all corporates were instantly deeply concerned. And, and, and we, you know, we sort of conducted an exercise with all of, our, all of our portfolio companies. Some were extraordinarily on top of it. I mean, absolutely on top of it. And have done well. By and large, the, the portfolio has emerged from that exercise well ahead of the game. But at the time, retail closed down. And, and if a product was being sold in the retail in the retail high street um, retail markets, then you know you might lose sales. One of our companies, very good, a really exceptionally good business, very well managed business now, lightweight Internet of Things, and but they sold 25% of their product through retail stores. Well, they closed. So there's 25 25% of your turnover has gone down the swanee. So and the action the management team took was to focus more strongly emphasize direct sales through digital channels. There's still retail in there, but it, but it's but it, they're all digital channels. So the likes of Amazon, for example, um, who are an extraordinary, extraordinary counterparty, absolutely fantastic in this case, have been a, a real lifeline for them. And, and direct sales have been a real lifeline. You find that, you know, if you're 
as a, as a company with a consumer product selling straight, selling direct to the underlying consumer, you really control quite a lot. You know, you know what the consumer's thinking. You've got, you can, it's cash straight in if it's if it's direct to the consumer. You can support the consumer yourself. And actually, all of a sudden, taking an intermediary out, you've increased your predictability of, of revenues. So you, Lightwave, for example, emerges from all of this profitable, probably 18 months before it would otherwise have been, leaner uh, and with a much better product market strategy. Well, it's always good to hear that some, somebody's done well in the pandemic, and there's quite a few, I think. What I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at you, and we'll get your brief thoughts on them. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made, and why? Investment will reinvest. So we did an investment in Cortex, which is an ed tech business, which is for us a big investment. Uh, we've invested actually with a co-invested with a, a third party, um, 9.2 million um, ed tech business providing digital textbooks and platforms on two levels to universities. So, so a, a platform for the university itself, a platform for the students to help with, with learning. And th- they're a remarkable, they're a remarkable mm-hmm. business. Uh, and actually, by, am I allowed to give you an anecdote or are we out of time? Let's give it again, Anna. So, so they, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, the, I spoke to the chief exec and he, and he was saying, um, so what are, you, what are you doing, James, in this case, to, to uh, develop the business? And he said, don't worry, Steve, we're completely on top of it. They, they if you think about the university digital textbook market, it is it is viewed as a threat to the, to the big publishers. Um, anyway, he persuaded the world's leading publishers to provide free textbooks using the Cortex platform to UK universities. So the company concluded it was over 120 transactions, central transactions to universities through the libraries, which for various reasons very clever. Of those 120 free textbook programs, 100 have then turned into commercial contracts. So you can see why investors were, and of course that has a significant impact on. I mean, there are only 163 universities, I think, in the in the UK, so it's a big chunk of, of universities. But that's an outstanding business. So that was that was one of our recent uh, investments. Yeah, no, it's good to see someone improving that market. Someone who has done a little bit of teaching at one of the universities here in Edinburgh. I know that the textbook market is well. It's not really a market. I think would be fair to say. Yeah, it, it, it's. Um, I, I think it's fascinating. It's it certainly in terms of the global markets. You know, we've seen de- delivery via platforms, and there were various options for this for this industry. But you've got, let's say, four thousand publishers in the English-speaking edtech world providing um, textbooks to universities. But from a university perspective, I, I, you know, I, my sympathies go out to you hugely because you know, the pu- purchasing of uh, dealing with up to, perhaps not as many as four, but up to 4,000 counterparties to provide physical books is a hell of a logistic exercise. If, as I suspect, although Brian, I'm sure you're not in this category, quite a few university professors only decide on some of the reading for, for courses for quite late in the in in the cycle price of purchasing, in which case you know there's a real rush before the beginning of the academic year to to, to buy books. So I think the the concept that you can go to a single company, that company already has relationships with the 4,000 publishers, 
and you tell them and then you just download the books and it's uploaded onto the students app of course it sounds very simple but actually it's a major step a major step forward and it's been hugely helpful during work work from home and the pandemic no i, I can step inside the angels but i actually had no choice in terms of because i step in and part-time i don't have any choice about the textbooks that are recommended um, so in the classic venture capital sort of situation, everyone knows that market product or, and management are very important. Which do you think is the most important and why? Management is, is the most important constituent. And from our perspective, if you think about what we do, so mm-hmm. we can do a ton of analysis on a product. We really understand what we don't want to do. We don't want to lift the lid off and, and get our screwdriver out and fiddle around with this or, or do resort to software engineering we can we can certainly understand the user experience and the efficacy of the product really very well and the underlying market we can do a, an awful lot of analysis so we know you know we will know at the point of investment whether it's a good product and we'll know whether it's a good market and whether the market is generally receptive to the product management is of course the the, the sort of magic ingredient the key component uh, the only snag is from our perspective it's also by far the most difficult constituents to understand and read and yes it's, it's definitely about so good management with a poorly constructed business plan can make a business a success bad management with a really good business plan is much more likely to struggle in my view your view is the one we want to know so tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it yeah we've had in our EIS investors, we haven't had a uh, haven't had an outright failure. We have one company which is security industry business, and we tried everything we normally try. So, investing in new product, uh, in developing the product, uh, we replaced the management team on one occasion, almost the entire management team, but, but generally we replaced management team twice. We fiddled, changed the product market strategy. But in the end, we kept bumping out on the same problem, which was a fundamental problem to do with the underlying market. So I think the, the key learning point from that, and I was on the board, so I can't, I can't pretend it wasn't my fault. But the key learning point from that is, is you need to be, you know, as an investor acting mm-hmm. on, on behalf of your, you know, your underlying uh, investors in the fund, you need to be pretty hard-headed. And, it, and if you feel that for whatever reason the the market has moved away from you or the product is not good enough and there are other competitors crowded in if the investment thesis no longer remains true you need to switch off the spigot and move your attention to other things so the eis industry in which we work is far from perfect if you could change something what would you change i think first thing standing is, is a very good it's a very good structure and it's and it's hugely influential in terms of my you know my industry that I know and love, uh, venture capital tech. I would certainly look at simplifying the rules. So there's always a tendency to tinker, and I think some of the changes have been have been overwhelmingly positive. So we we just invest in you know growth tech businesses, but I think the way the rules were constructed originally. You could invest in in a lot of other uh, other things as well. So there's some various issues around film finance, asset based, and, and so mm-hmm. on. It, it's now been reorientated towards that, but it has become quite complex to the extent that occasionally, you know, we know the rules very well, and I've got colleagues who are t- 
tax um, accountants and have worked in the tax department in major companies, we, it is not clear 100% to us whether a company will qualify or not. And I think that's partly to do with complexity of the, of the rules. So I think if anything, if it could move towards more com- a, a simpler structure away from being complex, that would be that would be helpful. I, I do think, if you allow me, one other thing: it, it's we feel that with EIS, one of the issues with the industry is it motivates investors to invest in a company, in part because they get their uh, income tax offset. So we always say we always say to people, you know, our investments are tax enhanced; they're not tax they're not tax led. Other structures do different things. So there are probably two or three. There's one in the in the in the US structure in the US. There's uh, in the UK the Enterprise Capital Fund. What they do is is they the, the benefits flow through at the point of exit. So, for example, with ECF, the government will invest a proportion as uh, part of the investment, and it's asking for, you know, let's say a smaller return, let's say 3%, 4% a year through to exit. So the, the leverage effect is significant. So what that means is private sector investors do better at the exit. So why do we say that? We say that because it, it's pretty important in our business that investors are along for the ride, that a lot of our investors, are, you know, they're, they're very knowledgeable, they can help if they're engaged. They would be more engaged if they felt that they would do particularly well at exit, I think at the moment, if there's a rebalancing point, perhaps, which is an awful lot of investors who just want to offset 30% of income tax and then see what happens. And, and I and I think that's it changes people's motivation. So that would be the other thing. Okay, that's that's, that's interesting. So because one of my pet one of the things I I don't like about this industry is is too much of the chat is about tax and not enough about the investments. And there's a really good investment case to be made for this sector. Yeah, there absolutely is. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. So lockdown's been fantastic for my reading. I got through 54 books last year. So I'm always up for a good recommendation. Anything you'd like to suggest that you liked? Right. This was the most difficult question, Brian, I think possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so like you, I'm a, I'm a reader and I go through books through a rate of knots um, whilst at home. So I, very difficult. I, I think there were two two things. One, which I just think was an extraordinary piece of work, which is by Richard Tarnas, uh, called The Passion of the of the Western Mind, which sort of compresses three, 4,000 years of, of uh, European thought into one book in a, a really extraordinary narrative, thrilling book, in my view. And actually, I must say, it's one of those books I, I keep going back and dipping into. I haven't um, heard the of other that one, one so that's good. Ah, there you go. Um, and in a way, I think it's a one-off. I mean, it, he, he obviously he writes exceptionally well, and he really knows the, the subject area. But he's then he's he's now writing about other things. But the the other one is probably the author is well known, but but the book perhaps not so much is um, Viktor Frankl, who created the third Viennese school of psychotherapy, which sounds a bit intimidating, but really his the whole thesis is that life is better regulated if we look forward and ground ourselves in the things that we want to achieve. And anyway, he's written several books. One's called The Doctor and the Soul, which he wrote in the sanatorium at Auschwitz whilst in a, having cholera, uh, a cholera attack. It, it's an extraordinary, he, he's an extraordinary man, mm-hmm. inspirational. But I think the circumstances help prove and validate the thesis. And, and I think it's a, it's a very helpful 
it's actually a philosophy and it's um and, and a psychotherapy but really good book yeah 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 i've, I've read his i'm trying to remember the most famous one about man's search for meaning probably that's the one, the one yes, yeah which you know. well, that, i think that's the, that's the way in actually so that probably is the is the better one because that t- talks partly about his time running a polyclinic in vienna and then partly talks about his time in the in the camps but he's he is an extraordinary well he's unfortunately he's, he's uh now dead but extraordinary guy yeah. mm. very 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 worthwhile reading so what do you wish you knew when you started with committed capital that you know now so I had a strange experience in venture capital, uh, raising money for funds I did initially as a, as a corporate financier. Uh, I then was part of a, an organization we, in the very early stages, raised a lot of money in VC, so we probably raised about 600 million in total from big institutions. What I, had, what I did with my colleagues at Committee Capital from the outset was to put together a set of really good processes to invest in in companies and we've had a we, you know we've had let's be clear a good a really good run in terms of our actual re- realized exits since 2001 it's been you know we've been very fortunate in the companies we've worked with i, I think the the thing i wish i had focused more on is external marketing so i, I would say to myself back in 2003 4 Stephen spend as much time as you can within the constraints you've got. It's a busy world, but on, on external marketing, because you may well have a good firm, but you need to, uh, you need, it's important that people externally are aware of that and, mm-hmm. act, and act accordingly. Yeah. Yes. I, I still think this industry as a whole is one of the best kept secrets in finance. I don't hear about that. It is fascinating. So we've got quite a lot, good lot of work done on, you know, the impact of, innovation and R&D, we haven't really spoken here and probably rightly on 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 the economy that the value that's added to the UK through small, very sort of determined groups of people creating new tech products. And that's really what this this is about. And it, it does it gets you out of bed in the morning. It, it, it's clearly the right thing, the right thing to be doing in the current environment with the likes of Brexit, you know, with the sort of the economic situation driven by the pandemic, one of the ways out actually is for this industry really to perform dramatically well over the next 10 years. And I, and I think you know, that will stand the UK in good stead and, and will also mean that the UK economy does well compared with its peer group. I, th- I think there's a lot to be said for that. And we'll see if Rishi at some point in the future throws us some more bones. Um, so if anyone wants to find more about what you're doing at Committed Capital, where should they go? I think initially the website, so which is committedcapital.co.uk, and all of the details there you know, for people who want to get in touch. And my central phone number is there. And I, actually, I'd be delighted to, to talk to anybody who's interested in, in us. Great. We like accessible CEOs. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Steve. I've really enjoyed that chat. It's been really interesting. Good session. Thank you very much indeed. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. 
Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.